Do you, any of you remember when you became a Christian? Because I do. Not everyone does. Uh, I have a friend who worked for KFI for years and years and years, and he said, he said, I have no memory of when I became a Christian. He says, as far as I know, I have always been a Christian. From babe in arms up. He grew up in the church and he never wavered. I'm pretty certain my daughter Megan would say the same thing. She grew up, her first Sunday in life was in the church. I mean, she was always in church, always looking into the scripture. She reads through it at least twice a year still now. Uh, I know that she knows the scriptures better than I do. I wouldn't doubt that Lauren would tell you that she has always been a Christian herself. I remember well how I became a Christian. Now, I've shared with you all before that I grew up in the church myself. I can't remember a time that I was not in a pew. My very earliest memory in life was I was probably about three the only strange thing about this is that I, it involves a cousin that I never saw in church again, but that's neither here nor there. But this cousin leaned over and said, Mike, that's Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Hey, that was in, didn't look anything like him to me. I was three. I knew what they looked like. You can't fool me. But um, I grew up in church. I probably didn't hardly miss a Sunday, really, uh, until I went to college. Uh, and life then got in the way. Work at night to support going to college on Saturday nights, I will say, prevented me from going to church on Sunday. But that's not probably really true. Uh, it was a contributing factor. But many feel fall, fall away during college. So why do I not say that I'm... One of those who has always been a Christian, because I do not. And the reason I don't is because of how poorly I was taught in the church that I grew up in. Maybe my heart has always been a Christian. I've always felt a call by God in my life, but I cannot truly say that I was always a Christian. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. I'm going to say right here, right now, that I didn't love the Lord with all my might, and I will add to that, do I do that now? Do I truly love the Lord with all my might? Well, my might is waning with my age, and I'm getting closer now, okay? But, but I can't truly say that. Now, Jesus always has the last say on Scripture. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, he throws in a wrinkle because he, um, he quotes Deuteronomy, but he changes it just slightly. And as God, I'm going to say that he's allowed to do this because I think what he does is actually shows you what Deuteronomy means. The Sadducees had just tried to trap Jesus in the finer points of the law. And Jesus silenced them with his answer and his rebuke that they knew neither scripture nor the power of God. And it goes on, very next sentence, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four 34 through 36 says, 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, and I love that, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So of note here is that they get a lawyer to ask the question. Even 2,000 years ago, the reputations of lawyers um, were no different than they are now. I mean, it was Shakespeare 500 years ago that famously said the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. So they get a lawyer to ask the question because lawyers back then were the expert on the law, and the law was the law of the Jews in the Torah. Anyway, Jesus responds in verses 37 through 40 to the answer, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? He says, he says You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Jesus said you must love God with your heart, your soul. It doesn't say might, but with all your mind. And I think that that is wound up with might right there. You must love your God with your mind. J. Vernon McGee once said, and I heard him say it, um, because I enjoy J. Vernon McGee, okay? Just to let you know. Uh, I'm not sure he's the greatest Reformed theologian that ever walked this earth. But he said that all you need to know to be a Christian is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, my question to you, is that so? Is that a true statement from J. Vernon McGee? Is that all you need to know to be a Christian, that Jesus loves you? But what about who Jesus is? Okay? Recently I was listening to Dennis Prager on the radio. And I've always had a complaint with him for who he allows in his radio show to be a Christian. Okay? Because Dennis Prager always said on his shows that if you claim to be a Christian, to me you're a Christian. And that would include Jehovah's Witnesses, and includes Mormons, and it includes all these different groups who claim to be a, G, uh, um, a Christian. And one day, somebody on his radio show said, Dennis, who is a Jew to you? Dennis wavered, and the guy said, is the Reformed Jew who doesn't believe in God a Jew to you? And Dennis says, well, no, because they don't believe in God. They're not a Jew. And the fellow said, well, that's how Christians feel about people claiming that they believe in Jesus when they de deny the Orthodox faith, when they deny who Jesus was, when they have another Jesus. He said, I've never thought of that before. So the question is, which Jesus loves you? Is it the spirit brother of Lucifer, of Mormonism? Is that the Jesus you're talking about when you say, Jesus loves me, this I know? Is it, is it um, the Jesus who is the co-redemptrix co of the world with Mary uh, that the uh, Catholics have? Is it um, the rabbi of Judaism and of Islam? 
Jesus loves me, this I know. Do all of these Jesus save us? Okay? Now, Jesus said to love your God with all your heart and soul and mind. I know I couldn't have been a Christian growing up because I really hadn't been taught who Jesus was. I couldn't love him with my mind. No matter what my heart was saying, my mind was not there. After we were married, Erin, um, who had also grown up in the church, she probably, I haven't asked her if her earliest memories are of church, but she grew up in the church also. Also found other things to do during college. When we got married, Erin uh, decided we needed to go back to church. So we did. Sort of like as we were talking about Adam and Eve. You know, here, eat this. You know, okay. You know, Adam eats this, okay. Aaron says, we need to go back to church. And so I say, sure. What we learned at the first church we went to was at the denomination she grew up in. What we learned from that church, the very first thing was that the Sunday school teacher wished that sometimes she wasn't a Christian so she could have fun partying on Saturday nights in bars with friends. And at sort of that point, I said to Aaron, I said, there's, there's something a little wrong here. This is not... Aaron and I knew there had to be more to Christianity and Christ than that. So we found ourselves up here, and it sounds like a very quick amount of time, and it was. It was a very quick amount of time that we were up here going to church. The pastor of the first small church that we walked into, it turned out, and I dearly love him, and he just passed away last year, but... The pastor was pastor of the church because he had mistakenly gotten an invitation to preach up at Twin Peaks Church. His roommate was supposed to get the, um, get the invitation to preach. He got it instead and said, I can do that, and came up to preach. And Robin would have loved him. He was a scientist. Okay, He was, he was just completing his master's in genetics, of all things, looking forward to his doctorate. Uh, at UCLA, I believe, and was planning on a career in genetics. But found himself up at this little tiny church, a little bit bigger than this one is right now, for very little money, teaching Aaron and I. So there Aaron and I were, learning Christianity, reading the Bible, being taught doctrine, the upshot of this overly long introduction to our passage today is that Aaron and I became Christians under his teaching. But along the way, you know, we asked all the usual questions. The one I remember best is this one. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father but by him, what, what about the Aborigines in New, New Guinea in their hut in the middle of nowhere who have not only not seen somebody who's not a member of their own tribe, much less a Christian missionary? What about them? And I've always remembered Pastor Bob's reply, and it is actually, I didn't know at the time because I was that well-churched that I didn't know that it is really the answer 
He said, God gives light to everybody. And you're to act on the light that he's given you. The the Aborigines in New Zealand, or New Guinea, close, New Zealand, the Aborigines in New Guinea see the creation of God. They have all of nature. They can see the handiwork of the creator every day. So they have that light that they have to work with. They are to react to that light. Now, I know that the, that question you know, that I asked is, is the question that not only every new Christian asks, you know, how can this possibly be? But it's also what every person who is antagonistic to Christianity believe. The nation of Israel was given God in the flesh. The natives in New Guinea were given the evidence of the goodness of the Creator. In both cases, some responded, others did not. But of those who responded to the light that they were given, God added more light. But we don't have to look at cannibals and Pharisees for our example. We can look at ourselves. Aaron and I responded to the light we were given, and God added more light. Okay? So, Acts 10, verses 1 through 2, which we covered in depth uh, two weeks ago, says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile, uh, probably raised, to paraphrase Paul, who said that Paul said that he was a Jew of the Jews. Uh, Cornelius was probably a pagan of the pagans, okay? He was a Roman by birth. He was a slave. He was a centurion. He was probably about as pagan as you can get. But he was given some light, okay? He was given some light, perhaps only the light shared by men the world over, the light of creation. But whatever light he was given... He had responded to it. We're not told when or where he began seeking God, but now, at this point in his military career, he has been stationed in the land peopled by the race peculiarly claimed by God as his own. Verse 3, uh, verse three which is starting our passage for today, says... About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now, remember, it was whenever it was that Cornelius first responded to the light that he was given, this day found him in prayer to God at the ninth hour prayers. This was the most important time of prayer at the temple in Jerusalem, the 3 p.m. prayers, and as what was called a God-fearer, a Gentile who worshipped Jehovah God, he was devout in his worship of the God of the Jews, stopping short of Jewish conversion. 
short, stopping short only because of circumcision, probably, in his devotion there. Most full converts to Judaism, as I've said before, were female because of the obvious pain involved. Okay? So, this day during the, his prayers, God sent him a clear vision of an angel of God speaking his name. Verse 4a continues, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Now, one common, our, our common culture today treats the appearance of angels casually. And probably that's because we don't ever see them, okay? You know, we have uh, TV shows such as Touched by an Angel, right? Um, There's the baseball movie Angels in the Outfield. We have an angel trying to earn his wings in It's a Wonderful Life. Not so in the biblical reality. The appearance of angels produces terror any time they were seen. Judges 6.22, then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 21.16, we see an angel appear to King David. The fearless warrior king, what was David afraid of? He wasn't afraid of Goliath. Uh, He fled from Saul, but I'm not positive he was afraid of Saul. He could have killed him at any time, and he didn't kill him. So in in 1 Chronicles, we have, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces." Daniel was also a mighty prophet of God. Daniel 10, 4, 9 says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And more close to Cornelius' time and occupation, we have Matthew 28, 2-5 at the tomb of Jesus. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
Uniformly in scripture, the appearance of an angel inspires fear, if not abject terror. I do not doubt, despite today's sitcoms and movies, that that would be the same result today if an angel were to appear before men. Verse 4 here shows Cornelius, the middle-aged, responsible centurion, who was expected to stay at his command as a battle fell apart around him and casually face his death without leaving his post. That's what's expected of Cornelius. But he sees an angel in this vision. He stares at the angel in terror and manages to stammer out, What is it, Lord? Verse 4b, And the angel said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. See, Cornelius had responded to the light God had given him. And God is about to give the centurion more light. The angel continues, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. John MacArthur points out that despite Cornelius' sincerity in his worship of God, he could not be saved apart from a correct understanding of the gospel of Christ. Cornelius had to have more light. What he had was not sufficient for him unto salvation. Cornelius had responded to the light of God that he had been given. Because of God's election of him and the centurion's seeking heart, God is moving to prepare him for further light. So, how does it work that God chooses us, that God elects us before the foundation of the world was laid and yet we must respond to the light to the knowledge that we're given John MacArthur points out that divine election and I alluded to this last week election and what we call divine election and human responsibility are both the clear teaching of scripture Proverbs 18 uh, 8 17 says I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Okay? I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek and find me when you seek with all your heart. Gosh, that sounds a little bit like Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But you will seek and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And to make sure you know it's not just an Old Testament idea, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and rewards those who seek him. Okay. Now, John MacArthur goes on to say that salvation is both accomplished by God 
and commanded of sinners, okay? Sinners are, I've used it before in other sermons, call on the name of the Lord and be saved, right? It is the, we are commanded to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. John MacArthur says that, says that salvation is both accomplished by God and commanded of sinners. And how does that work? Well, the next statement of John MacArthur says, although our limited comprehension does not allow us to harmonize them, there is no conflict in the mind of God. God knows how it works together. So we say it's not of man, it's not of man, but we're commanded to call in the name of the Lord to be... So something works together in a way that we don't, that we cannot harmonize ourselves. And I'm not really worried about teaching that because it is teaching scripture, okay? To teach that we have to call on God, to teach that we have to, whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and rewards those who seek him. You shall seek and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Scripture teaches it. I have no problem teaching it. If I can't explain how it works together, that's not God's problem. That's not Scripture's problem. Frankly, that's not my problem. Okay, so. Cornelius was seeking God, just as when Aaron and I were married, we began to seek God. So he had to seek God. We began seeking God. And it wasn't just Aaron saying, here, eat this. I mean, because uh, I was seeking God too. We were, both, we were both interested. And here God is about to send the Apostle Peter to Cornelius. With Aaron and I, something brought us to this mountain. Okay? Well, not something. God brought us to this mountain. God brought us to where we were going to receive more light. Cornelius was going to get Peter to give him more light. We got up here and were given more light. Cornelius is going to respond to the further light given to him through the presentation of the gospel by Peter, just as Aaron and I responded to the teaching of a faithful pastor, a fellow named Bob Vandiver, just because a faithful pastor. Election and response, how do they work together? Another faithful pastor, John MacArthur, has said that our simple human minds can't comprehend God's ways. And I don't, but teach, Scripture teaches it clearly. God has given us a light. Therefore, we must respond to that light. That is the story of Cornelius. That is what he has done. God has... And you know the thing is? You know, this is used as the example of the first pagan coming to being converted to Christianity. But obviously, and I found this other places, obviously the teaching of Philip among the uh, Sumerians and others going out, they had brought people to a saving knowledge previously. We saw the Ethiopian, we, you know, 
This is the example of the first time we see God reaching out to a Gentile and bringing him to knowledge to to sending for the Spirit to send Peter to go specifically to a Gentile man that is named by name, okay? That's what this is really the first example of because we know that there were believers in odd places throughout the Mideast. God expects us to, to respond to the light that we have been given to him in whatever small way we've been given to it. Bob used to say that whatever light was given was enough in God's mind to have someone call upon his name to be saved. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do. Thank you that you gave us the light that first of all, you did elect us, you did call us to be your people, but then you gave us a light to respond to. You gave us a heart for you. Without the heart for God, none of us would be here. Without the desire to know your word, we would not be sitting here today. Without your saving grace, we would still be lost in a world of lost. Lord, I pray that everybody would respond to the light that you have given them. That however they go together, that everyone could be saved. We understand, Lord, that not everybody will be saved. But Lord, we pray that as many as you would have would respond to your light, call on your name, and be saved. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.